The Litro Lab Podcast. This month, Litro is in the throes of supernatural terror with an issue dedicated to all things ghostly. So, getting into the spirits of things, we're very excited to welcome novelist Sarah Waters to the Litro Lab podcast to talk to us about her favourite classic ghost story and about writing her own ghost story, her novel, The Little Stranger. Sarah Waters' first three novels, Tipping the Velvet, Affinity and Fingersmith, immersed readers in the grim underbelly of Victorian society. She moved to post-war London for the Night Watch, and her most recent novel, The Little Stranger, stayed with the social upheaval and austerity of the 1950s, where war trauma, grief and the deep-seated fractures of the class divide fuel a very modern haunting. Sarah has always been a fan of ghost stories, so we asked her to choose her favourite for a reading on Litrolab. The Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs was first published in 1902, and has put in regular appearances in horror anthologies ever since, generating a myriad of imitators and parodies. I spoke to Sarah on the phone about why she loves the story. Sarah, you've chosen The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs as your favourite ghost story. Could you tell us why you picked that one? Well, I remember reading The Monkey's Paw when I was a child. I think my dad was a fan of it, and I was a big, big fan of ghost stories as a kid. And um, anyway, somehow The Monkey's Paw came my way. And, God, I loved it. You know, I've loved it ever since. It's just a perfect... It's not, strictly speaking, a ghost story, because there isn't actually, you know, the ghost of the person. It's um, it's a horror story, a story of the supernatural anyway. And it's about as classic a statement of the supernatural as you can get. And it's such an economical story, you know. It all takes place within sort of nine or ten pages, I think. And it's just incredibly um, evocative and, uh, and scary. It's all done by suggestion. We never actually see anything ghastly. All we hear is the returning sun kind of knocking on the door. But it's incredibly um, powerful. You know, less is definitely more when it comes to the ghost story. What was your early experience of ghost stories? Did you read them as a kid? I did. I liked ghost stories and I loved horror films. And it was pretty much all I read were ghost stories and horror stories. I was reading books like, you remember those pan book of horror stories you used to get mm-hmm. and um, things like that. A lot of which I've returned to now and looked at again. And they were right mishmash. You know, there's some dreadful sort of corny stories in there. But there's also some real classics like The Monkey's Paw and um, stories by writers like um, Edith Wharton and Charles Dickens, you know, lots of the the classic ghost story writers. So at quite a young age, I think I was being exposed to really very um, sophisticated ghost stories. And um, yeah, my love of ghost stories has stayed with me ever since. I don't tend to read short stories as a genre much at all. I have to confess, I'm a real novel fan when it comes to reading and writing, except for ghost stories, which... um, I've uh, yeah, I just continue to read and reread. I think I think the thing about ghost stories is, it's the best form for the supernatural. Um, I mean, I've written a novel that's got a supernatural theme, The Little Stranger. But on the whole, I think there's something about the shortness of, of, a, of a ghost story that works particularly well when you're dealing with the supernatural, because the supernatural is, uh, by its you know by definition, it's something that we can only sort of get glimpses of or or you know get suggestions of and I think if you if you spend too much time on it you kind of wreck it and when you came to write The Little Stranger what drew you to the form of the ghost story in particular well I'd always had this um 
hankering to write um, a, a novel of the supernatural. And I, you know, there've always been, often there've been gothic elements in my my other books, like Affinity, which deals with Victorian spiritualism, um, and Fingersmith, which sort of you know has a big old crumbling house in it. And it, they've they've had their gothic moments. But with um, with The Little Stranger, I hadn't planned it to be a ghost story. I'd I wanted it. To, I wanted to write about the late 1940s, which I'd got to know a bit through my previous book, The Night Watch. And I was really interested in class. Actually, it was such an interesting time in Britain in class terms. There was a real there was a real antagonism between the classes. And I tried to think about how best to approach that. And I had a sort of teenage girl. I had a lonely country house. And suddenly I thought, hang on a minute. You know, maybe this could be a poltergeist novel. It's really a novel about a poltergeist. I think the little stranger. And as soon as I realised that, it was fabulous. I could just really kind of give myself to the genre and enjoy it and had tremendous fun, um, you know, writing what I hoped were, were kind of scary sequences in the novel, you know, people trapped in rooms and odd noises and pitter-patter of footsteps past locked doors and things like that. I mean, it was just fantastic. I loved it. One of the similarities I noticed between The Little Stranger and the story you've chosen, The Monkey's Paw, is that the fear and suspense in both stories comes from what's not seen, from not revealing the ghost. Your ghost in The Little Stranger is something of a poltergeist. There are sounds and strange goings on, but we never really see the ghost itself. And in The Monkey's Paw, the ghost is suggested but never even described. We never see it. Was that holding back of the horror something that was important to you as a writer when you came to uh, tackle the ghost story? Yeah, I think you have to do that with, with ghost stories. Like I was saying, really, I mean, I think the problem with a lot of um, horror films is that they, they want effects, you know, and they do too much. And the moment you see the monster or the ghost or whatever, usually is that's the moment when it, all the sort of suspense and tension and the chilliness of it sort of disappears. So, I mean, the greatest the greatest ghost story films are things like The Haunting, um, uh, Turn of the Screw, you know, that 60s version with Deborah Carr. Um, in which you get glimpses of things, you get these sort of obscure glimpses of things. And that's what I tried to do with The Little Stranger, and that, that's what's done so brilliantly in The Monkey's Paw. You know, I, I felt that um, it just had to be all done by suggestion. I mean, I mean, it remains obscure in The Little Stranger, really. We, there's, you know, I kind of leave it, sort of leave it up, for, up to the reader, you know, to decide what exactly has been going on. And because I have this very, very rational narrator who never really experiences anything supernatural himself he's just reporting it all to us um which again is a very very classic ghost story thing to do if you think of the stories of people like well like henry james or um mr james the great british ghost story writer you know that's a that's a, that framing device is, is a kind of classic thing to do and i wanted exactly that that distance between the reader and the supernatural events that allow you to decide, um, you know, what, what might have or might not have been going on. You know, if you're writing about the supernatural, then by definition, uh, you can't explain it. Again, I think that's a, that, that can be a problem with ghost stories and horror films, that, that, that they try to, to tie things up too neatly at the end, and there's just this, you're left as a, as a reader or a viewer with a slight sense of deflation, I think, at that point. Um, so I definitely wanted things to remain strange. You know, um, I mean, God, I don't know if I really believe in the supernatural but I think if there is anything we could call supernatural it has to be essentially strange and foreign and other and we can't quite get our heads around it you know and that's what gives it its power um so yeah I mean the monk I was rereading the monkey's paw as an adult I'm always struck by how conservative a story it is actually in lots of ways which of course I missed as a child how it's you know it's got a very particular setting it's a suburban setting with an elderly lower middle class couple in it 
and um, really the whole thing about, you know, it's kind of be careful what you wish for story. It's rather conservative. It's rather, you know, sort of anti-ambition and wants to keep those sort of little little people in their their place, really. And I, I'm always a bit sad about that as an adult, but it's still an absolutely fantastic uh, ghost story. The Monkey's Paw was also a very traditional ghost story. There's no question that something supernatural is going on. Uh, there's definitely a ghost, there's definitely something at the door. Uh, whereas The Little Stranger is a much more modern ghost story in that there's certainly a question about what the ghost is, whether it's something truly supernatural or something from inside one of the characters. Uh, but while they're very different in that way, one similarity that struck me is that they're both centred around a huge emotional trauma, the loss of a child, um, a daughter in The Little Stranger, a son in The Monkey's Paw. Do you think that extreme emotion of grief is important in the ghost story form? Yeah, definitely. And I was just rereading, actually, by uh, by chance, I was just rereading The Woman in Black, which, again, is, you know, a wonderful, wonderful modern ghost story, um, which centres completely on a, on a woman who's lost her child, had her child taken from her, and as a result becomes this kind of ravening energy, you know, this ravenous energy that just wants to destroy other people's children. Um, and so I think you do. Yes, there is a lot of there are a lot of children and lost children in uh, in uh, ghost stories, um, precisely because I think that is there's this tremendous emotion attached to to you know parent child relationships. And I think, you know, yes, I can I can believe that if there is anything creating sort of um, supernatural effect or ghost, it is it is that kind of unfinished business. You know, it's that longing that we have. It's not being unable to deal with loss. Um, um, yeah, things things that just haven't been resolved, which of course is exactly the case in the monkey's paw. The mother who just can't get over the death of the son um, is, is driven to making that wish on the monkey's paw, even though it's what it's going to do is bring back the kind of mangled body of of the son from his grave, and it's absolutely ghastly. Um, and what what also interests me now as an adult in the monkey's paw reading it is, you know, you kind of feel like the mother. If she opened the door on the mangled body of her son, she probably could deal with it. But I don't think the father could. You know, he, he, he. The prospect of of seeing what his son has become is too much for him. And again, that that seems to me to be very interesting about parents and children and what and how far, and how or you know how far it could could and couldn't go. Your attachment to a child could it take you actually? Could you know? Could you rejoin them sort of across across the gulf of death? Could you go? Over, beyond the grave i mean that's just that that those sort of questions are at the heart of lots and lots of uh, supernatural fiction i think another parallel that struck me was that both the little stranger and the monkey's paw use the metaphor of the house um, a place of comfortable domesticity contrasted with a threat of change from outside uh, and the idea of inviting something in that could be damaging to uh, the status quo can you tell me a little bit about your choice of using Hundreds Hall, uh, the house at the centre of the Little Stranger, as such a central character in the book? Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Houses do often come up in um, in Gothic fiction. I think often often representing something else, you know, representing the psyche or um, the body or things like that, the maternal body sometimes. Um, in Little Stra- in the Little Stranger, I think I was. Uh, like I was saying, once I'd got that idea to, to use a poltergeist, that the, the whole novel fell into place for me because I saw that what I could do was use the supernatural as a way of talking about other sorts of tensions like class. I mean, often sexual tensions or family tensions come up in ghost stories. Um, and the house seemed to be a way of, of kind of um, opening up a space for, for those things to be explored. Um, as you say, houses, I mean, houses are just 
very um, ambiguous, aren't they? Because you can be cosy inside a house, but as you say, there's always there's, there are walls, there are doors, there are windows between you and and a potentially threatening outside world. Um, so yeah, I had great I had great sort of fun with that really, um, creaking doors and staircases are another area that crop up in ghost stories because they're this kind of threshold um, place. You don't quite know what's around, what's around the corner and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it just, I mean, it was interesting. It was really interesting writing The Little Stranger because so much of it sort of wrote itself. I think once I decided to embrace the ghost story tradition, um, lots of things just, just fell into place. Um, and so with that house, Hundreds Hall, I did lots of research to make it feel like a real house. I hope it feels like a real house, you know, a real 18th century house. Um, I thought a lot about what it would be like to live in a house that big with those big spaces. But also, ultimately, I could feel, even as I was writing, the house became another sort of structure, a psychological structure, like all the, all the houses of Gothic fiction, like Miss Havisham's house or the house in The Turn of the Screw or those houses in the Brontes novels. You know, they're sort of charged places. And, um, yeah, as, as I say, I was just really happy to let, let that happen while I was writing the book. And why do you think we still love ghost stories so much? Well, it's got to be something so slightly cathartic, hasn't it? I mean, the, I think the pull of the ghost story will be there as long as we're still anxious people, you know, and in a funny sort of way. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of gothic fiction around at the moment, not necessarily ghost stories, but vampire stories, incredibly popular zombie stories. Um, and I think, you know, it isn't a surprise given what a sort of nervous, anxious world we live in at the moment with all these sort of, Big, big threats, you know, climate change, terrorism, economic meltdown, things like that. We're all in, sort of trying to deal with enormous forces that we can't really change but, but feel sort of a victim to. Um, so I think as long as we're anxious people, ghost stories will continue to have an appeal because the ghost story or you know, the gothic story is a, is a sort of forum for kind of um, playing with or enacting um, anxieties, but I suppose what the, the what probably what, what part of the appeal is that usually there's a kind of closing down of anxiety at the end of the story, as there is in in the monkey's paw. Um, there's a sort of you know it's a kind of safe way I suppose, but then I think also the best ghost stories like the monkey's paw, what you come away with is this lingering disquiet. Um, um, so I don't know, it's, it's an odd thing. It's a bit like going on a ghost train, I suppose. You're kind of exposed to these things kind of jumping out at you, but you, you come back to the real world at the end. Um, but I think, as I say, the best ghost stories, they leave you with a little bit of um, a few chills to kind of carry away with you even into your ordinary world. The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlour of Laburnum Villa the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind! said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter, grimly surveying the board, as he stretched out his hand. "'Check. I should hardly think that he'd come tonight,' 
said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathways are bog and the roads are torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife, soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin grey beard. "'There he is,' said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whisky and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair, and spoke of strange scenes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange people. Twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. "'When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him.' "'He don't look to have taken much harm,' said Mrs. White politely. "'I'd like to go to India myself,' said the old man, "'just to look round a bit, you know.' "'Better where you are,' said the Sergeant Major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass, and sighing softly, shook it again. Oh, "'I should like to see those old temples and, and fakirs and jugglers,' said the old man. Was, what was that you started telling me the other day about a, a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White, curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leant forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips, and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. "'To look at,' said the Sergeant Major, fumbling in his pocket, "'it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy.' He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'And what is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. "'It had a spell put on it by an old fakir,' said the sergeant-major, "'a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it, so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it.' His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him 
in the way that Middle Ages want to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the Sergeant Major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? inquired the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the poor. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his front finger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. Well, if you don't want it, Morris, said the old man, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major, but I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second instalment of the soldier's adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey paw is not more truthful than those he's been telling us, said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, colouring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. <laughs> Likely, said Herbert, with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. "'I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact,' he said slowly. "'It seems to me I've got all I want.' "'If you only cleared the house you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you?' said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. "'Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it.' His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son 
with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. "'I wish for two hundred pounds,' said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. "'It moved!' he cried with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hands like a snake. Well, I, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done, but it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again, while the two men finished their pipes. Outside the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. "'I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed,' said Herbert as he bade them good night and something horrible squatting up on top of the wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains he sat alone in the darkness gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it the last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement it got so vivid that with a little uneasy laugh he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it his hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, Herbert laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shrivelled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense! How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father?' "'Might drop on his head from the sky,' said the frivolous Herbert. "'Morris said the things happened so naturally,' said his father, "'that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence.' "'Well, don't break into the money before I come back,' said Herbert, as he rose from the table. "'I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you.' His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast-table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant-majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. "'Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home,' she said, as they sat at dinner. "'I dare say,' said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer, "'but for all that, the thing moved in my hand, that I'll swear to.' "'You thought it did,' said the old lady, soothingly. "'I say it did,' replied the other. "'There was no thought about it. "'I just—' "'What's the matter?' 
His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it and then, with sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her and, hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologised for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. "'I uh, was asked to call,' he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. "'I come from Moore and Meggins.' The old lady started. "'Is anything the matter?' she asked breathlessly. "'Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it?' Her husband interposed. "'There, there, mother,' he said hastily. "'Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir.' And he eyed the other wistfully. "'I'm sorry,' began the visitor. "'Is he hurt?' demanded the mother. The visitor bowed in assent. "'Badly hurt,' he said quietly. "'But he is not in any pain.' "'Oh, thank God!' said the old woman, clasping her hands. "'Thank God for that! Thank—' She broke off suddenly, as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears— in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. "'He was caught in the machinery,' said the visitor at length in a low voice. "'Caught in the machinery,' repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. "'Yes.' He sat, staring blankly out at the window, and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days, nearly forty years before. "'He was the only one left to us,' he said, turning gently to the visitor. "'It is hard.' The other coughed, and rising, walked slowly to the window. "'The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss,' he said, without looking round. "'I beg that you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders.' There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action." "'I was to say that Moore and Meggins disclaim all responsibility,' continued the other. "'They admit no liability at all. "'But 
in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realise it, and remained in a state of expectation, as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectations gave place to resignation. The hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. "'Come back,' he said tenderly. "'You will be cold.' "'It is colder for my son,' said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm, and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully, and then slept, until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. "'The paw!' she cried wildly. "'The monkey's paw!' He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room towards him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlour on the bracket, he replied, marvelling. Why? She cried and laughed together and, bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. "'The other two wishes,' she replied rapidly. "'We've only had one.' "'Was not that enough?' he demanded fiercely. "'No!' she cried triumphantly. "'We'll have one more. "'Go down and get it quickly, and wish our boy alive again.' The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. "'Good God, you are mad!' he cried aghast. "'Get it!' she panted. "'Get it quickly and wish. "'Oh, my boy, my boy!' Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. "'Get back to bed,' he said unsteadily. "'You don't know what you are saying.' "'We had the first wish granted,' said the old woman feverishly. "'Why not the second? "'A a coincidence,' stammered the old man. "'Go and get it and wish,' cried the old woman, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. "'He has been dead.' ten days. And besides, he... I would not tell you else, but... 
I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back! cried the old woman, and dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness, and felt his way to the parlour, and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow, cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. "'Wish!' she cried in a strong voice. "'It is foolish and wicked,' he faltered. "'Wish!' repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank, trembling into a chair, as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle-end, which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed and a minute or two afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but both lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, the husband took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment a knock, so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat,' said the old man in shaking tones. "'A, r a rat. It, it passed me on the stairs.' His wife sat up in bed, listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. "'It's Herbert!' she screamed. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy! It's Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot! It was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sake, don't let it in!' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son?' 
she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I, I'm coming. There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing, and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back, and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting. The bolt! she cried loudly. Come down! I, I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back, and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp, flickering opposite, shone on a quiet and deserted road. The Monkey's Paw was read by Greg Page and was used with the kind permission of the Society of Authors as the literary representative of the estate of W. W. Jacobs. Thanks to our guest Sarah Waters. You've been listening to the Litro Lab podcast. <laughs>